0: And as I said, we've been working our way through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church, and for the past two weeks, we've focused primarily on this event known as the rapture of the church, and the reason that we're taking this time to really dig into this topic and understand it is because it's important, It's important because when you really wrap your mind around the reality that this life is simply preparation for eternity, when you really wrap your mind around the reality that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, it dramatically changes the way you live your life in the here and now. It alters your priorities. It fills you with hope that things don't need to come together perfectly down here. To, to put it plainly, concerning end times events, Paul told the Thessalonian believers, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. And so, even today, it's our desire to fulfill. Paul's desire for the Thessalonian believers by studying what God's word has to tell us about his future plans for the church and for the earth. We're going to talk a bit more about the rapture, and then we'll move into talking about this strange phrase that comes up in the Bible, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. What is it? When is it? What does it involve? Well, we'll we'll get into all of that. Now when you or I talk about the concept of of prophecy, we'll talk about this first. We're generally referring to the classic Greek model, the classic Greek idea of philosophy, which has two basic ingredients. It has prediction and fulfillment. This is the idea of prophecy that we're generally all familiar with. Somebody predicts something and it either happens or it doesn't. However, in the Hebrew model of prophecy that we see in the scriptures, there's a third dimension of prophecy. There's prediction, fulfillment, but there's also this other category called pattern. And Bible scholars have pointed out that Jesus' end times plan for his church seems to follow the pattern of a traditional Jewish wedding. So the idea of a pattern is that something will happen in the Bible and it will serve as a pattern for something that's going to happen later on. And we've seen this many times in the scriptures with things called types, when part of a person's life will be a pattern for part of the life of Jesus or something like that. And so scholars have discovered that Jesus' plans for his church in the end times seem to follow the pattern of a traditional Jewish wedding. And that's interesting Especially because out of all the metaphors that Jesus could have chosen for the way that he relates to his church. He could have described it as being like anything. But the metaphor that Jesus chose in his word is him as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. He chose to do that, so these similarities would not seem to be coincidental. Let me explain to you what a traditional Jewish wedding would look like around the time Jesus was on the earth. So the first thing that would have to be taken care of is the payment of the purchase price. It's called the ketubah, and what some cultures would call a dowry. And until this price was agreed upon and paid, a wedding was not possible. The groom would have to agree with the person who was the father of his bride on a purchase price. Once the groom and his family had taken care of payment for the bride, she would become set apart. That's the phrase they would use. That's literally what the word sanctified means. It means set apart. This means everybody knew there was an agreement in place. The purchase price had been paid. She had a future husband. Even though she was not yet with him, she belonged to him. She was betrothed is the word. She was off the market completely. Next, the bridegroom would return to his father's house, and he would go to work preparing a room addition onto the family's house. They'd just start expanding the house a little bit. While he was building this addition, while the bridegroom was working on this, the bride would be preparing herself for his imminent return, And she wouldn't know exactly when he was going to show up because there's nothing women love more than not knowing when they're going to be picked up and when they need to be ready. So she had to keep herself ready. And it was a bit of a game because the bridegroom would would try and surprise her, sort of come at a time that she wasn't quite expecting. Yeah, I can't believe that this was a thing either. I thought it would have stopped the first time the bride threw something at the bridegroom, but, but that didn't happen. And then one day he would show up. And he would have half the town with him and he'd be riding on a donkey or something like that. He'd come over to his house to get his bride because the room in his father's house was ready. And they would ride together to the wedding, known as the huppah which would immediately begin and would be followed by the marriage supper, which would last for seven days. It's a perfect prophetic picture, a perfect prophetic pattern of Jesus, the church, and the rapture. Because as we know, Jesus has purchased us, his bride, with his blood. We are now sanctified, we're set apart. We are reserved to be the bride of Christ in the future. Jesus, right now, has returned to his father's house, heaven, to prepare a place for us, as he told his disciples in John 14. And while he's doing that, Our job, and we get told this over and over again in the New Testament, is to be ready for his return, be watching for his return, even though we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. We do know, however, that it could happen at any time. Jesus is going to come and collect us, his bride, his church, and he's going to take us back to his father's house where the bridegroom, Jesus, and the bride, the church, will come together for what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It takes place in heaven and it's mentioned in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. Now, how long did we say a traditional Jewish marriage supper lasts? Seven days. How long will the church be in heaven with Jesus while the tribulation takes place on the earth? If you don't know, the answer is around seven years. And then Jesus will return to the earth with his bride, the church, to establish his millennial kingdom. He will reign on the earth as king for a thousand years. So in the Bible, pattern is prophecy and a Jewish wedding is what would have been running through the minds of the disciples in John 14 when Jesus said to them, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. You see, that was all wedding language. That was all wedding imagery, bridegroom and bride stuff, and they would have been tracking with him. Jesus has a plan to come and collect his bride, his church, and that plan is the rapture. So would you write this down if you haven't already on your outlines. Jesus, the bridegroom, will come and collect his bride, the church, at the rapture. Jesus the bridegroom will come and collect his bride, the church, at the rapture. Now shifting gears a little bit here, in chapter five, we're going to see Paul use this phrase, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that appears around 35 times across the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. If you type the phrase day of the Lord into your favorite Bible website, you can go through them and, and read them all in their context. And if you do that, you're going to discover very quickly that this phrase doesn't refer to a single literal day, but rather a period of time. And even as I was doing the research, there is a Plethora of bad explanations of what the day of the Lord is. I feel like if you grabbed five different commentaries, you would get five different answers, but it's not actually that complicated if you just go look at everything the Bible says about the day of the Lord. It begins when God starts pouring out His judgment on the earth. If you've been with us for these past two messages, then you'll know the basic order of events. Before God starts pouring out his judgment on the earth, he removes his church from the earth in the rapture. The rapture marks the end of what's known as the church age which began on Pentecost in 33 AD and is recorded in Acts chapter two. So from 33 AD up to today, we are in and have been in the church age. But the church age comes to an end when the rapture happens because the church is removed from the earth. Shortly after the rapture, assumedly no more than a few years later, could be way less than that, a period of seven literal years begins. This time period is referred to in the Bible as the 70th week of Daniel. Again, if you're like, Jeff, what are you talking about? If you wanna know why it's called that, you gotta hop on our website and listen to our study on Daniel 9 called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. I mentioned that last week. If you haven't done it, go do it so you can track with me. God begins pouring out his judgment and wrath on the earth when the 70th week of Daniel, that seven year time period begins. That's when God starts pouring out his judgment on the earth. So to put it this way, if you're still with me, the day of the Lord begins when the seven year period, known as the 70th week of Daniel, begins. God starts pouring out his judgment and wrath on the earth in what's known as the day of the Lord when that seven year time period begins after the rapture. And Peter tells us that the day of the Lord goes all the way up to the end of our universe which takes place after the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. I put it on your outline. Peter writes in his second epistle, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. What Peter is describing there is the moment our universe ceases to exist. God destroys our universe as he creates a new heaven and a new earth that's right at the end of the book of revelation if you want to read about that so in summation i put this on your outline it's a little long but again it's the shortest way i could get it for us the day of the lord is a term that covers the future time period when god judges the earth by pouring out his wrath upon it it begins shortly after the rapture of the church and concludes with the destruction of the universe. So it goes all the way from the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom. Now we've talked before about how part of the reason Paul wrote these two letters to the Thessalonian believers was to clear up some of their confusion and concerns regarding what Paul had taught them about the end times, about eschatology. They were worried about their loved ones who had died and and were being martyred. They were worried that their loved ones, maybe they're not gonna make it into eternity because they didn't make it to the rapture. And we've talked over the past two weeks about how Paul addressed those concerns, but they were also worried about things like, uh, are we in the great tribulation right now? I mean, people in our church are being killed by the Roman government. Are, Are we in the great tribulation? Have we missed the rapture? Are we, are we going to go through the great tribulation if this isn't it? And Paul's gonna address some of those answers here in chapter five, and then he's also gonna address them in his second epistle, which we'll be studying into next. Remember that 1 that Thessalonians was a letter. It wasn't written with chapters and verses, so everything Paul's just written about the rapture in verses 13 through 18 of chapter four that we looked at last week, he just keeps going right here into chapter five, and he writes in chapter five, verse one, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, so the times and seasons related to the rapture and the end times, he says you have no need that I should write to you, why? He says for you yourselves know perfectly. In other words, Paul says guys, regarding the timing of all these end times events, you don't need me to write to you about this because you already know the answers. We talked about this at length when I was with you in Thessalonica, that's what Paul is saying. Now in verses two through 10, Paul is gonna remind them of what they need to know about how they should live in light of the fact that the rapture could happen at any moment. And he's gonna do that, this is huge. He's gonna do that by contrasting, that's the key word, contrasting the difference between believers, the church, the saints, and non-believers. He's going to describe the difference being as stark as the difference between day and night, the difference between light and dark. And he's going to contrast the behaviors of both groups as one has an appointment with the rapture and the other has an appointment with the day of the Lord. So in verses two through 10, always keep in mind which group Paul is speaking to or which group he's speaking about. So let's read verses two and three together. I'm gonna have you underline some things that'll bring some clarity to this. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, underline the day of the Lord, so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, underline they, say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, underline them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, And they, underline, they shall not escape. So did you notice Paul shifted pronouns here? He's not saying brethren anymore. He's talking about them and they because he's not speaking about believers. He's now speaking about non-believers. And he says that to them, to non-believers, when the day of the Lord begins, when God begins to judge the earth, it's gonna be unexpected. It's going to be shocking, it's going to be alarming, it's going to be disturbing, it's going to induce fear. All the things that you would associate with discovering that a thief has broken into your house in the middle of the night. So would you write this down? The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night to non-believers, to non-believers. Then Paul tells us that when the day of the Lord begins, when the 70th week of Daniel begins, when those seven years begin, Two of the buzzwords that people are gonna be talking about are peace and safety, peace and safety. And I I think there's two ways you could go with this. If you haven't noticed, over the past couple of decades, really since 9-11 happened, people are willing to give away almost any type of personal liberty or freedom for the promise of peace and safety. And I'll try not to go into a sideways rant, but this is sort of well-known political theory that if you want to remove personal rights and freedoms from any group of citizens, you have to make them be afraid so that they'll voluntarily give them up for the promise of peace and safety. And so we've given up a lot of rights, a lot of freedoms, a lot of privacy, and it hasn't actually made us any safer if anyone's keeping score. There's not less terrorist attacks now than there were 20 years ago. There's way more all over the world. And so people are always willing to trade freedom for safety always and that desperation only seems to be increasing every time there's there's a mass shooting like the one that just happened in New Zealand well if we can just get rid of guns there's not a lot of guns to begin with in New Zealand because the ultimate problem isn't guns the problem is broken people who have sin (laughs) issues who need Jesus And as long as the whole world isn't serving Jesus, there's gonna be evil and wickedness in the world. That's just going to happen. But we always think, man, if we can just orchestrate peace and safety, what do we have to do to get peace and safety in our world? Whatever it takes. And I believe that as we go forward into the future, this desperation for peace and safety is really what's going to fuel the meteoric rise of the man who will be known as the Antichrist. Because in a world that's crying out for peace and safety, the Bible tells us he's going to show up and deliver. He's going to show up and do things like broker peace between the Jews and the Arabs in the Middle East, which no one's been able to do for thousands of years. He's going to do it and people are going to say, finally, there's the guy who can give us peace and safety. So it could be that the world is just crying out for it as we get closer to the day of the Lord, but it could also be that as Antichrist delivers this, everyone's saying, peace and safety. We're in a new age. We finally got rid of all those pesky Christians in our political system, and our judicial system. Now we're free to create the utopian progressive society we've always wanted. We can, we can do whatever we want and we finally got the leader that the world needs in this Antichrist guy. I don't think his last name will actually be Antichrist, but for the purposes of these discussions you get what I mean. That'll be a little bit suspicious, right? Bill Antichrist is my name. Something sounds off, but and people will be saying, we're in a new age, the age of peace and safety. Sure, sure, there's a few problems. There seems to be a little bit of wrath coming from the heavens, but, but you know, this is the guy who's gonna, he's gonna sort this all out. So it could be that too, or, or it could be both. But Paul says that despite the world's desire for peace and safety, the day of the Lord is gonna come upon the earth with sudden destruction as God pours out his judgment and wrath starting at the beginning of those seven years and then turning up to 11 in the back half of those seven years, the time known in Scripture as the Great Tribulation. And he says that that when it happens, when the day of the Lord begins to happen, it's going to be like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Here's what that means. It means when it starts, this thing is irreversible. Irreversible, too late to change your mind. And it means it's going to get more and more and more intense until the main event, till the culmination. And the main event, the culmination of the day of the Lord that this is all gonna be building up to is a new heaven and a new earth, ultimately. Before that, though, is going to be the second coming at the end of the great tribulation. And so things are just gonna get more and more and more intense till we get to the second coming, which will take place at the end of those seven years. Paul says that those on the earth shall not escape, meaning that non-believers won't be able to escape the wrath of God in the day of the Lord. Even those non-believers who survive to the end of the great tribulation, make it to the end of those seven years, they will not survive the second coming. They will not go into the millennial kingdom. Non-believers will not go into the millennial kingdom. You can read about that in Revelation 19. And so now Paul is going to contrast the experience of the non-believer with the experience of the believer. So if that's what's going to happen to the non-believer in the end times, it's gonna be like a thief in the night, what's going to happen to the believer? Verse four, now underline this. He changes pronouns again and he says, but you, underline you brethren, but you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you, underline you as a thief. Verse five, underline, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. And then underline, we, we are not of the night nor of darkness. For the believer, the day of the Lord will not be like the unexpected appearing of a thief because when the day of the Lord overtakes the earth, the believer will be in the light in the day. They'll be where? In heaven with the Lord, the one we long to be with. For the non-believer, the day of the Lord is a day of fear and inescapable destruction, but not so for those of us who love the Lord. And so even though we're not gonna be here for Antichrist, for the day of the Lord, for all that, even though we're not gonna be here, we still pay attention to the signs of the times going on around us. And the illustration I love to use, you've heard me do it before, is I say, it's sort of like when you go to Costco and there's Christmas decorations you know Thanksgiving's almost here, right? So here's the idea. When you see signs for the day of the Lord approaching, signs for the enormous surveillance state that the Antichrist is going to oversee coming into place, when you see countries forming political agreements that are prophesied in the Bible, then you begin to say, well, we're we're close to the day of the Lord, which means we're even closer to the day of the rapture, which is what we're looking for. More importantly, we look for the coming of Jesus because we love him and we long to be with him. And earlier in this very letter, you might remember Paul identified that behavior, longing to see Jesus, longing for his coming. Paul said that behavior is one of the basic evidences of being a Christian, one of the three basic evidences. If you love the Lord, then you can't wait to be with him. If you love the Lord, then you'll be looking for his arrival. It's a concept called the doctrine of imminence. It's the doctrine that teaches Jesus could come for his church at any moment. And so we should be living our lives accordingly. But it's also a concept that's often mocked by those who say something like, and maybe you've heard this before, Jeff, people have been expecting the rapture to happen at any moment for almost 2,000 years now. And guess what? It hasn't happened. Why would you expect things to be any different today? And what's so tragic is that it's believers who say things like this. I've never had a non-believer mock me for thinking the rapture's gonna happen in my lifetime, that my timing was off. It's believers who say that. And it always astounds me because the Bible speaks very specifically to believers who express that sentiment. I put it on your outlines. Peter wrote this again in his second epistle. He said, scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Sounds a lot like what you hear from a lot of believers today. And these scoffers refer to the fathers. And when Peter wrote that, the fathers would have been referring to the Old Testament patriarchs, guys like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In our context today, it's almost like people say that referring to the early church fathers, and they say, you know, the earliest church fathers, the apostles, they died expecting the rapture in their lifetime. It didn't happen. Almost 2,000 years later, it still hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. All these end times events are not literal. Maybe you should calm down. But Peter now corrects that type of thinking and he says for this they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. I know that sounds a little complicated. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. This is what Peter's saying. He's saying those who doubt that God is literally going to do all these things in the end times, they forget that God has already judged the whole earth once before. In the great flood of Noah, he wiped out everyone on the planet except for Noah. And he's planning on doing it again in a final, ultimate time of judgment. He says, those guys are forgetting about that. How can they do that? Well, then when you talk to people who share this, you'll often find that they'll say, well, maybe the flood wasn't really a thing either. Jesus spoke about the flood being literal. Peter is speaking about the flood being literal. You see, you can't actually abandon the Bible's speaking literally about the end times without abandoning a whole bunch of other things and saying, well, well, maybe that's not literal. Maybe the flood wasn't literal, you know? Maybe, maybe a bunch of these things in the Bible aren't actually literal. And then Paul goes on to say, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but is long-suffering, he's patient toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, Cliff Notes version, this is it. Make no mistake, God's future plans are right on schedule. Right on schedule. And just as the Lord judged the earth literally in the flood, he will judge the earth literally in the end times. So firstly, the first response I would say to someone who, who doesn't buy the idea of the doctrine of imminence, that says, Jeff, I I don't think we're meant to be living expecting that this thing could happen at any moment. We could leave the earth or suddenly the sky could open and there could be Jesus. That, that's a little crazy, Jeff. The first thing I would say to anyone who has that response is I would say, I don't think you want to be the person that Peter the apostle calls a scoffer. I don't think you want to take that position as being the guy that one of the apostles calls a scoffer. That's not, not a compliment. You don't want to be that guy in the text. Paul said, I don't want you guys to be ignorant about this stuff. The return of Jesus is the most frequently referred to doctrine in the New Testament. Get this, one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament focuses on the return of Jesus and tells us that we should have a sustained expectation as we wait on him. One out of every 13. Well, why else do I believe the rapture could happen in my lifetime? Just a few quick reasons. Firstly, because Jesus and his word tell me repeatedly to look for his coming and to live ready for it over and over again. Peter, Paul, John, Jesus, the other New Testament writers, they tell us, Look for his appearing, long for it. We should do that, number one, because the Bible says we should. That's why I believe it could happen in my lifetime. Why else? Well, because in Daniel 12:4, Daniel is told that in the last of the last days, our understanding of Bible prophecy will increase. In other words, there'll be things in the last of the last days that believers are gonna understand that are in the Bible and are in Bible prophecy that no other generation of believers before them could understand. There's literally things in the Bible that God has designed so that they will only be unlocked, will only be able to understand them in the last of the last days. There are prophecies in the New Testament from Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, and others. The church age laid out in order in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, only discernible in the last 100 and 150 years. It took that long for the pattern to emerge and unfold across history. Our ability to take end times prophecy literally due to advances and developments in technology, population, and politics, we can take Almost everything the Bible says about end times prophecy literally because the world has changed. And most importantly, the fulfilled prophecy of Israel becoming a political nation again. These are all things that that we understand today in Bible prophecy but that have been inaccessible to the church for around 97% of the last 2,000 years. Things really are different in our lifetime. Bible prophecy can't be fulfilled literally when it talks about Russia and there's nothing in Russia. Things have changed, things really are different. And by the way, we don't have time to get into it today, but if you're not familiar with this all important prophecy regarding Israel I just alluded to, you need to hop on our website and listen to that teaching. It's one of the keys to understanding biblical end times prophecy, and I put the link on your outlines. But Jeff, still, still, I mean, what if you're wrong about Jesus coming for his church in our lifetime? Then then what have I lost? What's the downside? I I will have lived my life looking for and longing for Jesus just like he told me to. I will have lived my life focused on storing up treasure in heaven rather than here. I will have lived my life prioritizing the kingdom that will last forever forever rather than the kingdom that will be ultimately destroyed. In summary, there's no downside to living under the doctrine of imminence. It causes us to not waste our lives and to live wisely, to make the most of our time here and to align the priorities of our life with the things that are going to benefit us for eternity. That's why Jesus tells us to live our lives ready for him to show up at any moment. It's to be our motivation to take our lives seriously. There's no downside to it. Verse six, Paul goes on and he says, therefore, in light of this, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch. Would you underline watch? Watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. Now, just a couple of things. I don't want you to get hung up on the drinking issue here. Firstly, when Jesus is talking about that there, he's not talking about a glass of wine or a few beers. He's talking about the person who's completely inebriated and and wasted. But... Most importantly, this isn't a passage about alcohol. It's about the differences between the way people act when they're in the darkness compared to the way people act when they're in the light. And that's just one example. Paul's point is that there are behaviors that seem okay in the darkness. There's a reason all the lights aren't on in clubs at night. Because there are behaviors that seem okay in the darkness but not okay in the light. Paul says sleeping seems normal when it's dark. Not paying attention to the world around you seems normal in the dark. Getting drunk, pursuing lust and pleasure, these things seem acceptable to most of the world in the dark. But when it's the middle of the day, you're expected to be awake. It's not acceptable socially to be drunk in the middle of the day. You should be noticing what's going on around you when the lights are on. You should be working, you should be busy with productive things. Paul is saying, let's make sure that we're not taking our lifestyle and behavioral cues from the world around us because the world around us is in the darkness. We're not. We're children of the day. We're children of light. And as we wait for the Lord, let's act like children of the light. Let's act like children of the Lord instead of children of the dark. And I really just want us to notice here, there's only two groups there. There's no group that's in the twilight. Do you notice that? Making its way from one group to the other. You're either in the darkness or you're in the light. Those are the only two places you can be. You either belong to the Lord or you belong to Satan. Those are the only two camps. Paul goes on to say that instead of getting caught up in behavior that only seems okay in the dark, we should be putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, and did you catch this again? Paul wove it in one more time into the text. What are the three things that he lists there again? Faith, hope, and love, yeah, in a different order, but faith, hope, and love there again. Again, going back to what he wrote earlier in this letter, if we wanna live effectively while we're waiting to be united with Jesus, we have to stay full of faith, which we get from looking back to the work of Jesus on the cross. We have to stay full of love, which compels us to serve and live for Jesus in the present, and we have to stay full of hope, which is found in looking ahead to our glorious future with Jesus. Now, do you realize that that salvation is a process? Uh, When you and I give our lives to the Lord, we enter into a process that's part of salvation called sanctification. We're saved, we're secure, our eternity is secure, But the working out of our salvation is this process called sanctification. Salvation is a process that secures our eternity, but then our being changed to become like Jesus is this process of sanctification. It starts the moment that we give our lives to the Lord and the Holy Spirit comes into us. He goes to work doing this work of sanctification, saying we gotta make you more like Jesus. I've heard it well said, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay just the way you are. He's got something better for you. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing, this work of sanctification. However slowly it seems to be happening, it's happening, I promise. And the promise in Scripture is that that process will be complete when we arrive in the presence of Jesus and we're given our new resurrected bodies. Paul says here that our minds, our thoughts, should be on the hope That we have because Jesus has saved us. He calls it the hope of salvation. He says we should be wearing these thoughts like a helmet. In other words, our minds will be protected from things like despair the more we focus and think about the hope we have in Jesus. The more we think about our salvation, the more hope we're going to have. The hope that even though we're still going through the sanctification process, that it's going to be complete one day. God's gonna finish the work he started in us and that's supposed to fill us with hope. Now this next verse is so important. If you didn't do it last week, underline all of verse nine right now. They're saying, Paul, what about our loved ones who have already died? Will they make it to heaven? Have they missed the chance to be resurrected? Paul, are, are we in the great tribulation right now? Are, are we experiencing the wrath of God? Paul, are are we going to go through the great tribulation and experience the wrath of God? All these questions are answered in verse 9. Paul says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do for us, verse 10? Who died for us? Underline that. Who died for us? So Paul says, No, God has not appointed us for wrath. On the contrary, He did just the opposite. He died for us specifically so that we would not have a future appointment with His wrath, ever. Paul isn't adding the phrase who died for us just to fill up space and sound nice. He's pointing to the death of Jesus as the ultimate contrast to God appointing us to wrath. It's the exact opposite. Just like he's been contrasting the believer and the non-believer as day and night, light and darkness. That's what he's doing here. He's saying the polar opposite To us having an appointment with the wrath of God is us having an appointment with salvation. And then he says that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Would you write this down? This is it. Simply put, Jesus took our appointment with God's wrath on the cross and instead appointed us to obtain salvation. We did have an appointment with wrath, but Jesus took that appointment for us at the cross and instead gave us an appointment with salvation. We talked about this last week, but I just wanna touch on it again because this principle is so key to understanding the end times, and when you get this, it just destroys so many wrong ideas and teachings about the end times. If you can just understand how clear this one doctrine is in scripture, you'll understand so much and be able to realize so many ideas that are off. Jesus promised that us as believers, we'd have tribulations in the world. That just means we'd have troubles, trials, persecutions, bad stuff. Why? Because we still live in fallen bodies in a fallen world. That means we're not immune to things like sickness or accidents or job loss or tragedies or taxes. Additionally, the Bible tells us that we have an adversary, the devil, who walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so because of that, We also experience trials and troubles due to the wrath of Satan. We belong to Jesus. Satan hates Jesus, so Satan tries to hurt his kids, the father's kids, you and I. And so we experience the wrath of Satan who stirs up the wrath of man against those who belong to the Lord. However, as we said last week, there's absolutely no biblical basis for claiming that believers ever experience tribulation as a result of the wrath of God. There's nowhere in the New Testament you can point to, not one verse, and say, ah, see there? The church has an appointment with the wrath of God. Paul has just told us explicitly, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is speaking there about the wrath of God. Again, we covered this last week, but how do we know he's talking about the wrath of God? Because when Paul wrote this, he had already experienced the wrath of man. And he wasn't confused. He understood that when he had been beaten in Philippi to within an inch of his life, when he had had people try to kill him multiple times, he understood none of that was the wrath of God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written, God did not appoint us to wrath. But he understood none of that was the wrath of God. That was the wrath of man stirred up by Satan. And eventually, Paul would be killed by the wrath of Satan stirring up the wrath of man. He'd be martyred for his faith. And yet Paul wrote, God did not appoint us to wrath. So he's speaking about the wrath of God. Now the rapture takes place and then shortly after that begins the seven year period known as the 70th week of Daniel. That's when God's judgment and wrath begin being poured out on the earth. That's described in the book of Revelation at length in chapters six through 19. And the amazing thing is, you know this, as you read those chapters, it's clear that everyone on the earth understands this is the wrath of God. There's no one going like, man, we sure have had some rotten luck with enormous meteors falling from the sky recently. There's no, nobody's doing that. Everyone understands what's going on. I'll read to you from Revelation six one more time. It says this, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So according to the Bible, In those seven years, the whole world knows and understands that they're experiencing the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of Jesus. Now, please understand this because it's so important. What takes place in Revelation chapter six through 19, the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, the great tribulation, is not the result of living in a fallen world. It's not the wrath of Satan. It's not the wrath of man. It is, according to the scriptures, the wrath of the Lamb. And Paul said, God did not Appoint us to wrath. It's real simple. Let me put it like this. Just follow the logic with me. If God's wrath is being poured out on the earth and the church is not appointed to wrath, very simply, then the church cannot be on the earth when God's wrath is being poured out. God says to you and I, you do not have an appointment with my wrath. And then God says, I'm gonna be pouring out my wrath right here. Either God's gonna be a liar or he's gonna keep his word by removing you from the place where he is pouring out his wrath. That's exactly what he's gonna do in the rapture. The earth has a future appointment with the wrath of God. Believers in the church do not ever have an appointment with the wrath of God. And I want to dig a little bit even deeper because, again, it's so important theologically to understand that the church never has and never will experience the wrath of God. In the New Testament, we get a very interesting little bit of commentary on Genesis 19 and a man named Lot the Apostle Peter writes about this guy, Lot, all the way back in Genesis 19. He writes about it in Second Peter 2, and, and we read this. It should be on your outlines. We'll read it and then unpack it. There's a lot here that might go over your head, but we'll bring out the main point in the end. Just hang with me. He says, "'For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, "'but cast them down to hell,' "'the literal word there is Tartarus,' "'another story for another day, "'and delivered them into chains of darkness "'to be reserved for judgment,' And if God did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, then underline this. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. The word temptations is literally trials. And to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment the day of judgment. This is, again, one of those verses, I don't know how you read this and say, no, I think we're definitely gonna be going through the great tribulation. I I don't know what you do with a verse like this. The point of the whole section of scripture is laid out in that final part I had you underline. Peter wants his readers to understand that God knows how to deliver those who belong to him while simultaneously judging those who have rejected him. That's his whole point, write this down. God knows how to deliver those who are his and reserve his judgment for those who have rejected him. So when you look at the earth, you look at one point in time, at one place, like Sodom and Gomorrah, he gives a couple of examples here. His point is, listen, whether we're talking about Lot, one righteous man in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's gonna destroy the city, he gets Lot out. Even when God's going to destroy the whole world in the great flood, he finds a way to protect Noah and his family, those eight people. His point is that, listen, God does not deal in collateral damage with his church. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, listen, guys, I got I to judge the earth, and I've been promising for a while. I've been dragging my feet on it, so I got to do it. And listen, I feel bad if you're there when I do it, but like, But like, what am I supposed to do about that? I heard one pastor say it's well. He said, listen, if I've got a termite infestation in my house, and so I have to have the fumigators come, and they put the tent over the whole house, you know what I can absolutely guarantee you I'm going to do? Is get my kids out of the house before they start spraying the gas, right? Well, Jeff, I mean... What if your kids haven't been behaving very well lately? I'm still going to get them out of the house before we start killing everything in the house. Well, well Jeff, Jeff, would I mean, I mean, wouldn't a little bit of, of, of testing and suffering be good for them? I'm still gonna get my kids out of the house before we rain down death and destruction on the house, okay? And I am not a better father than our heavenly father. What does the word say? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to you? So that's the point that Peter is making is God is not up there going, what am I gonna do? I gotta judge the earth, but I've also got people who belong to me on the earth. Oh man, I wish I'd thought ahead. He's not doing that. His point is, listen, God knows how to deliver those who belong to him and judge those who reject him. He's got a plan and his plan is is the rapture, that's what it's all about. Peter gives us a few Old Testament examples in there. He shares, I won't get into it deep, but he starts by sharing the whole Genesis 6 strange fallen angel Nephilim thing, and Peter says, listen, God took the fallen angels who participated in that and locked them up in this place called Tartarus, the deepest, darkest place in Hades, to judge them at a later time. God didn't just blow up everything. He dealt with those fallen angels and gave the people of the earth time to repent. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to our study on Genesis 6. Then he points out that when the world did not repent, the Lord found a way to to judge the whole earth while preserving Noah and his family. And then finally, he mentions the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that he delivered Lot from that. And Peter says, listen, God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's gonna pull those who are his out of the way, out of harm's way, before his wrath begins pouring on the earth. Paul calls us believers ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians. Because according to Hebrews 11:16, we're representatives of a heavenly country. We belong to a heavenly country. That's why heaven's our home, not the earth. We're ambassadors here. But what happens, even today, to ambassadors when their country is about to declare war on the country that they're serving in as representatives? Do you know what happens? If you have an ambassador from Canada and they're over in North Korea. I know, they're not actually over there because they're sanctions, but say they were. And Canada decides, yep, yep, you know, we're just, we're butting up with the states to go invade North Korea. What would happen to the ambassador before that happened? They get called home. They get pulled out, absolutely. They're called home before war takes out. They're taken out of the country where war is about to break out. In Revelation 4, the church goes up. In Revelation 6, wrath comes down. And here's the profound thing. In every translation of the Bible, four comes before six. Always, every single time. Before wrath comes down, the church goes up because believers will never experience the wrath of God. How many of you would say that's good news? Amen, that's good news. That's why in the very next verse, Paul says, therefore, in other words, in light of this, comfort each other and edify, that means encourage each other, just as you are also doing. Praise God, me, my wife, my kids, those of us who love the Lord, we're appointed to be united with Jesus, not to experience the wrath of God. And so what Paul has just told the Thessalonian believers, he says this is supposed to bring you comfort. This is supposed to bring you encouragement. The thought of going through the great tribulation, maybe it's just me, but that's not comforting. That's not comforting. The thought of escaping the great tribulation? Now that's comforting. And when you read the Old Testament scriptures about the day of the Lord, it becomes pretty clear that it's not meant to be a comforting time in anyone's perspective. For example, the prophet Isaiah wrote, wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And the prophet Ezekiel wrote, son of man prophesy and say thus says the lord god wail woe to the day for the day is near even the day of the lord is near it will be a day of dark clouds the time of the gentiles simply put the day of the lord is bad bad news for those on the earth it's the polar opposite of comforting there's no way that you can logically say well no no paul's saying that they're going to go through it but you know, they'll suffer and it'll be awful, but at the end, they'll be heaven. That's not comforting at all, in any way, shape, or form. In chapter three of the book of Revelation, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Philadelphia. They're the faithful church. They're the church that holds on to the word of God, keeps believing it and living by it faithfully. And to them, Jesus says, it should be on your outline. He says, because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour, underline the word hour of trial. I'll keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now I had you underline that word hour because it's really important. Jesus doesn't just promise this church that they'll be kept from the trial. In other words, he doesn't just say, well, I'll supernaturally protect you while that's happening here on the earth. Like you'll be on the earth, but... I won't let it kill you. He doesn't say I'll hide you away somewhere. He says, I'll keep you from the actual time period. I'll keep you from the hour of the trial. That's the idea. Because we'll be in heaven with the Lord. Believers are not appointed to wrath. We'll be with Jesus in heaven when that all happens. I'll say this in closing. When when Jesus spoke about the rapture and all his plans for the future of the earth, he said. Therefore, you also be ready. And he said this to his disciples. He said, you be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And I think the best way to interpret that is simply as be ready for Jesus coming sooner than you expect and be ready for Jesus to come later than you expect. Live ready for either scenario. And that's the healthy balance. Live your life ready for Jesus to come back today, but life insurance is still a super good idea, okay? Jesus could come back in a month. That doesn't mean that now is the time to max out all your credit cards on a once in a lifetime vacation because Jesus is coming soon. Don't do that. I need to be ready for Jesus to come back today, but I also need to be ready for him to come back in 30 years. The believer is called to live ready for the Lord to come back at any moment, any moment. And so as we wrap up, this is my simple thing I wanna ask us to ponder as we spend some time in prayer and worship. There's communion available in the back. Take it today, man, celebrate what the Lord has done for you, that he saved you, that he's got a plan to spare you from the great tribulation because you'll be in heaven enjoying fellowship with him. The question I want us to think about in this coming time of prayer and worship is, does your life reflect the fact that we're supposed to be ready for Jesus to come at any moment? If you looked at my life, if I looked at yours, would I say, yeah, that's how you're living. You're intentionally living, ready for Jesus to come back. Every day you're you're prioritizing the things that are pleasing to the Lord. does the way you approach your work and your job reflect that? Does your parenting reflect that? Are you, I think about this all the time as a parent, are we, are we raising our children to profit in this life or profit in eternity? You can do both, but you certainly should be prioritizing eternity over profiting here. I want my kids to be wealthy in heaven far more than I want them to be wealthy here. Do our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, if you're not marrying, your dating life. Do, do those things reflect a desire to live ready for Jesus to come back at any moment? Do our priorities reflect that? Again, if Jesus came back, would we all be saying like whoa, I thought I had way more time. I mean, I mean, I know Jeff is always talking about it, but he's kind of into that a lot. Do, I mean, do, do they reflect the fact that we actually think he could come back? Or when Jesus comes back, will we be going, oh yeah, I've been expecting you. I've been expecting you. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much as always for the wisdom of your word. Jesus, thank you that You don't tell us to scare us, but you tell us to comfort us so that we wouldn't face the future with fear. We know that when the earth enters its darkest days, we'll be with you, we'll be with you, enjoying your presence, enjoying heaven in fellowship as your bride, Lord, and we can't wait for that. But we also see over and over and over again in your word that we're to live ready for your coming. And so, Father, I just ask right now that your spirit would speak to us, that you would open up our hearts to hear you, to receive what you have to say to us with clarity and understanding. Because, Lord, we want to live profitably in light of where we're going to spend eternity. Lord, we don't want our, our best efforts and our best energies to be thrown away and wasted. Help us to do Everything, as under the Lord, as you've called us to. Father, as we parent our children, would you help us to raise children who live for heaven, who live for eternity, Lord God. We pray that our kids would love you more than we do, God. That they would serve you with greater zeal than we do. That the generations would go from strength to strength, Lord, and bless you more and more that they would do greater things, Lord God, for you. We pray that we would love and serve our spouses, Lord God, in light of eternity, that we would serve them as though it's you, because that's what you've asked us to do. Father, help us to do our work in a way that honors you. Help us to love people in a way that honors you. And to make blessing you and pleasing you our highest priority in every area of life, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus and we would love you to be a part of it.